foothold how to conquer your next big thing. We're in week three of it again. My name is Dion Garrett. I'm glad to be here with you as uh, we, uh, we talk about this. Uh, now, if you were, you know, like outside of the rock that you might live under sometimes this last week, if you've been aware of what's going on in the culture, then you, you've heard and you've read and maybe you've even celebrated the U.S. women's national team who won the World's Cup this week. Big deal, right? Yeah? Now, just to let you know, I am not a soccer fan at all. Like, I, I'm not. Um, in fact, I'm the guy who, when I'm watching kindergarten soccer, and you know, there's that kid who always gets turned around, and they start running toward their own goal to kick a goal on themselves. Um, I'm the only guy in the crowd who's, like, cheering because I don't get it. I'm like, yeah, I mean, what? It's a goal. I, I don't understand it. So uh, I, don't, I don't really pay attention to soccer Except I find teams that work well together irresistible. So as I've dived in a little bit um, on this team, trying to find out more about who they are and what makes them tick and what makes them so successful, I've, uh, I've enjoyed doing that. But as I've, as I've gotten acquainted with the individual members of the team, one name keeps surfacing over and over again, and that is the name Carly Lloyd. Does anyone know that name? Okay, uh, you probably have heard of it. If not, again, if you weren't following it, um, Carly Lloyd did not simply score... Three goals, not only did she score three goals in the final championship match against Japan, but she did it in an in, in historic 16 minutes. 16 minutes, three goals. I mean, it's never been done before. Um, she also was the only member of her team to score in the three previous tournament games before that one, which means that everyone is talking about Carly Lloyd, but not all of it's nice. Her coach, former coach rather, made headlines in the tournament um, for talking about how Carly Lloyd was so, so sensitive and volatile and how she was so difficult to coach. And my response to that is, often the most gifted people are the most difficult to coach. That's, that's why they pay you to be a coach, right? And yet people have, have, have said complimentary things, have said challenging things, said mean things. People have called her moody, inconsistent. Some have called her a beast. Some have called her a weirdo. Some have called her a choker. Others have called her a goat which I think is supposed to be a good thing, but I would not like anyone to call me a goat, especially if I was a woman. I wouldn't prefer that. Um, um, but when I look at Carly Lloyd's Instagram feed, I see something else. I, I want to show you some of the things that she's put on her feed. This one says, I'm a fighter. I will stand strong. I will stumble and I will fall, but I will never give up. It might take longer at times, but I will stand back up and keep fighting. Or look at this one. She says, to create something exceptional, I don't know whose quote this is, if it's hers or not, but to create something exceptional, your mindset must be relentlessly focused on the smallest detail. Uh, interestingly enough, there's a reporter from the Wall Street Journal who went and watched her warming up, and he said watching her was like watching an eighth grader on a travel soccer league because she kept running the same rudimentary basic drills over and over and over again. That's a woman who's focused on the smallest detail. Or uh, take a look at this one. She says, my aim is accurate because I have trained it. My mind is sharp because I have honed it. My body is strong because I have pushed it. I have earned my skill with sweat and blood. I am not an athlete. I am a weapon. Ha! Huh! <laughs> You're like, okay, don't hurt me, right? Um, uh, she, she talks about how Bruce Lee was one of her inspirations. He does ten, was rumored to have done 10,000 sit-ups a day. Or she talks about Muhammad Ali who would be, on, uh, be in the boxing gym on Christmas morning while everyone else is celebrating Christmas. He'd be in there fighting it out. Now, I don't know if that's before he converted to Islam or not, which makes it a little less impressive. But um, 
Obsessed is a word the lazy use to describe the dedicated. I love that. Obsessed is a word that the lazy use to describe the dedicated. Check this out. (laughs) I like this one. Um, Great things never came from comfort zones. And there's a picture of her legs in an ice bath. Uh, there are quite a few pictures of Instagram, on Instagram of her legs in an ice bath, which doesn't sound fun at all to me, but I guess it's necessary if you are awesome at soccer like she was. Now, as, as I look through all this, I want to go back to that uh, second to the last one again. This quote that says, obsessed is a word the lazy use to describe the dedicated. I think that sums it up well because when I look at Carly Lloyd, I see someone who evidences the discipline or the trait of, rather, fanatic discipline. I see fanatic discipline at work. And when you watch someone who evidences fanatic discipline, part of you finds it admirable and part of you finds it crazy. And we're left saying, well, which is it? Is it admirable or crazy? And the answer is both. It is both admirable and it is crazy. It is fanatic discipline. And fanatic discipline is necessary. Cultivating fanatic discipline is necessary if you want to conquer your next big thing which is what we're talking about in this series. Uh, We've been talking about first identifying your next big thing. That's what NBT is, your next big thing. Um, First, you've got to identify your next big thing. Few of us do this. We either are trying to tackle lots of big things at once and it's too much, we don't have focus. Or we're just going through the motions in life. We're just kind of living day by day with no bigger picture in mind, no, no bigger things in mind. You have to start with identifying your next big thing. Last week, we heard Stephen Howard talking about how you have to leverage your past. You have to learn from what what has happened in your past, the things that God has done for you, the things that God has taught you, the experiences that you've had, you can leverage those to help you. Even if you're facing something that you've never faced before, you have faced things in your past that can help you in your present struggle. And now today we're going to talk about cultivating fanatic discipline, which, by the way, is not a term that we ourselves coined here. It's a term that was first introduced to us by Jim Collins, who some of you might know is an author, business writer, and he wrote about this, this uh, idea of fanatic discipline in his book, Great by Choice, where he looked at the choices that some of the greatest leaders of the greatest organizations make. And uh, a bunch of us on staff went last year to the Global Leadership Summit. We go every year. Um, a number of you came with us, too. All of you are welcome to join us this year. It's the first week in August. Um, it's just here in Chesterfield, two days of just amazing leadership insights. It fuels me all year long, incredible stuff. I'm still talking about a year later, I guess. Um, But Jim Collins talked about this concept of fanatic discipline. And the way he introduced fanatic discipline is with another concept, something that he called the 20-mile march. Now, to explain the 20-mile march, he he used the real-life example of two famous explorers. One guy's name is Roald Amundsen. He's a, a Norwegian guy. And the other guy is Robert Falcon Scott, a British guy. And both of these guys were in a race back in 1910 to be the first to make it to the South Pole and back, because that's the important part, making it back. Uh, There are a number of differences between these guys, not just their nationality, but Amundsen was a guy who who relied on on ancient wisdom. And so when it came to figure out how to move all of his stuff to the South Pole, he relied on Inuit wisdom of saying, hey, dogs, they're the best way to pull your sleds, use dogs, and that's what he did. Um, Robert Falcon Scott was a little bit more of a technophile. He was into new innovations. And so he put all of his hopes into these new fangled devices called motor sledges. And uh, that was his great hope, except they hadn't been tested in Antarctic temperatures. And so what happened was these motor sledges, their blocks froze and cracked. But he had a backup plan because he was prepared. He's a good leader. His backup plan was to use ponies who also froze. 
Um, so he ended up having his men pull his gear, which was less than ideal. So there, there were lots of differences between these guys. But Collins highlights one difference in particular, this difference that he calls the 20-mile march. See, the Norwegian guy, Amundsen, and his team, they, they insisted on traveling 15 to 20 miles every day, no matter what. In contrast, Scott, the Brit, uh, his team would let weather dictate how far they would travel each day. And so on good weather days, they would push too far. They would go to the point of exhaustion to try to make up ground. And then on the bad days, they'd stay in their tents, and Scott would be in his tent writing in his journal, talking about how crummy their luck was and how unfortunate they were to get such bad weather. But that was not what Amundsen and his team did. Every day, no matter what the weather was, uh, they would go out and they would go 15 to 20 miles, the 20-mile march. On nice days when the weather was good and the team would say, hey, we we should take more ground today, he would say, no, 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 because he understood He understood the importance of rest and recuperation for this long, epic journey. In the end, it paid off, the 20-mile march did for Amundsen. Not only did his team make it to the South Pole 34 days before Scott's team, but Amundsen's whole team made it back safely from the South Pole. Whereas Scott's team, they made it to the South Pole second, uh, but but tragically, Robert Falcon Scott himself and five other members of his team did not make it back. They died out in the Antarctic. Now, I want you to be honest with yourself for a second. Which of these explorers best describes you? Do you find yourself being like Amundsen with a 20-mile march? Day after day, you get up and you are disciplined. You have an orderly, disciplined way of going at life. Or are you more like Scott's team? Sitting in your tent, waiting for the weather to be right before you strike. See, if it's the latter, and I think for a lot of us, I mean, we've got to see ourselves in that, right? But if it's the latter, this probably explains why we have such difficulty when it comes to conquering our next big thing. But here's what I want to say to you today. That no matter who you are, no matter how good you are when it comes to fanatic discipline, you can grow in this. Today you can begin to cultivate fanatic discipline. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a leader who learned fanatic discipline early in his leadership. God taught him this, and and God can teach us this as well. His name was Joshua. And Joshua, if you've been tracking with us, we're looking at the book that's named after him, the book of Joshua. Joshua was the leader of the Old Testament people, the Israelites. And the Israelites, they are attempting to conquer their next big thing. After being rescued from slavery in hundreds of years in Egypt, after traveling through the wilderness for 40 years, they are now ready to conquer their next big thing. And their next big thing is the promised land. This land that God says is a good land, a bountiful land that he wants them to have and to live in. But the problem with the promised land, I've said this before, is that it's filled with with wicked, bloodthirsty, evil, bad, bad, bad people. And so the Israelites, their job, their next big thing is, is to move into the promised land and to kick all of the other guys out. And it's not going to be easy for them. Uh, Last week we saw the first challenge they faced, even getting into the region of the promised land. They had to cross a river, a river that was at flood stage. And so they had to uh, cross the, the flooded Mississippi River without any boats or barges or anything else. But God provided for them miraculously. He parted the waters and they walked across on on dry ground. This week we're going to watch as they face their next challenge in conquering their next big thing. And that is the walled city of Jericho. So we're going to look at this today. You can open up your Bibles to Joshua 6. We're not looking at 5, just 6. Um, page 217 in your Bibles there in the rack ahead of you, or you can go to uversion.com and follow along by going to a live event and typing in 
STJ, STL. So Joshua 6, verse 1, let's read. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. So we find out um, that the, the people of Jericho, they are on lockdown. They know the Israelites are coming. They've seen them. They're a massive group of people. They've heard about them. And so they're on lockdown. Uh, what you he- would have heard if you were here last week is uh, Stephen Howard talking a little bit about the city of Jericho. That not only was it this great walled city, but, but it was really unique the way it was set up. It was, it was set up on a slope, on a, on a hill. And uh, the city was, was surrounded by three sets of walls going up a slope. So it wasn't just one set of walls. There were three sets of walls making the city basically impenetrable. The only way to defeat Jericho was to lay, lay siege to it, um, to, uh, to make the people starve to death and finally give up. There was no way anyone could attack, which makes you wonder, what on earth is God thinking when he takes this group of people who are not warriors, they've been slaves, they've been laborers, they've been farmers, they've never been warriors in their lives, and now God is taking these people and he's having them launch an attack on the most impenetrable fortified city in the whole region of Palestine. And yet, this is what God does. He sets them out at Jericho. And uh, so here's what happens next. Then the Lord said to Joshua, now I know for some of us who go to church often, this just seems normal. God talks to people. For some of you today, you're like, wait, what? So Joshua is one of these crazy guys who thinks God talks to him, right? Let me just speak from experience here for, for just a brief second. One of the really exciting things about being a Christian is not just that I get to read the Bible and learn what God did long ago, and have God speak to me through scripture. One of the exciting parts of being a a Christian is knowing that God still speaks to us. Uh, For me, I've I've got a discipline in my life, and that is whenever I'm facing a big decision or whenever I'm facing something big, a big challenge in my life, um, I have this discipline of going off on a half-day retreat. I'll spend, you know, four hours or so, and I'll go on a hike, I'll go on a walk, I'll take my journal, I'll take my Bible, I'll take some water, I, I might take a few snacks with me, and, uh, and then I just go and I walk. And I spend time praying and praising God and confessing. And, and then I finally get to just asking God for whatever it is that I need. Asking God for clarity in a decision. Asking God for blessing when I'm facing something big. And, and, then, I, and then I walk and I wait for God to speak. Uh, it's a discipline I highly recommend. It served me well because in some of those moments I feel like I've heard God speak back to me. He's either encouraged me or he's redirected me. And it's always kind of hard to know, is this God or not? But eventually you hear him, and in hindsight, you can see that, yeah, God was speaking because the outcomes work out. See, that's an exciting part of being a Christian. So today, if you're sitting here and you're not there yet, that's okay. I don't want you to close your mind to the possibility that God speaks. I think that's kind of what Joshua's doing. He's, he's getting ready to face this, this huge, impenetrable bat city in, in battle, and, and, uh, and, and he goes and he has his time with God. Now, I think in Joshua's case, it's a little more tangible than it's ever been in my case. These are, there's actually an apparition of God that appears either an angel or God himself. But this is what God says. God says, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. And Joshua's looking at the city going like, what do you mean? You've, I, I'm, I'm looking. I don't see it. And God says, no, no, no. I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. So here's what I want you to do. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. 
Now, now I got to tell you this really quickly. The Ark is this box. So when you see Ark, Ark of the Covenant, it's a box. And in this box, there, it's like a memory box of Israel's history. So in this box, there are the sacred um, tablets that God gave to Moses that, in, that have the law inscribed on them. There's also a couple other reminders of things that God had done for Israel. And so it's this really powerful concept. God says, hey, when you go into something new, I want you to remember that I've been with you in the past. And I'm going to keep being with you. So that's what the Ark of the Covenant is. So he says, have these priests go. They've got these trumpets made of ram's horns. They're going to go in front of the Ark of the Covenant. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. And the army will go up, everyone straight in. <laughs> so, uh, God says at the beginning of this, he says, hey, Joshua, it's going to work out okay. I'm going to give you the city. It's, it's going to be yours. And then he goes on and he describes the most bizarre thing. He says, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to, you know, get the ark and get the priests and their trumpets. And, and I want you to just go out and walk around the city once. And then go home and set up camp. And I want you to do this for six days in a row. Now, if, if, you're, if you're following along with this, right now in your head you should be going, what on earth is all of this for I mean, is this intimidation? You know, my, my kids, they swim on a neighborhood swim team, and our swim team is really chill. I mean, it's a good swim team, but, but I mean, the culture is very, very relaxed. And yet, sometimes we'll go to other neighborhood pools, and uh, I question some of the neighborhoods you guys live in, because your, your neighborhoods are, like, vicious. I mean, you, you show up at this neighborhood swim team, and everyone's like, you know, we're there with our stuff, and, and, and like, they're warming up, and they're not doing freestyle. I mean, they've got their, all their kids, I mean, six-year-olds doing, doing butterfly. And you're, like, looking around like, whoa. Um, and then before the meet actually starts, our kids are there with their, you know, with their airheads and their cheesy nachos and their sodas. And, and they're gathering their team. They're doing these big chants like, ah, 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 and their kids are yelling back. And our kids are going like, this is going to be interesting, right? I mean, intimidation. It's a, it's a great technique. Is that what God's doing? Is he trying to intimidate the people of Jericho? Is he casing the joint out? I mean, just imagine for a second as Joshua, this, this young commander, is trying to get his mind around this whole thing. And he's going, okay, okay, okay. So, so we got the priests and the ark and the trumpets, and, and we're going to walk around the city one time a day for six days. And then on the seventh day, we get to attack. And God says, no, 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 no. On the seventh day, here's what you do. You get to walk around seven times. Seven times? Yes, yeah, seven times. And blow your trumpets. All right, the trumpets. And, and then shout. Shout. And then the walls are going to fall down, and you're going to go in and take the city. Oh, boy, Right? I mean, this, this is terrible military strategy. This can't possibly work. And yet Joshua knows something about God. He knows that God's word is to be trusted. And so he goes back to his people, and this is what he says. This is what he does. He calls the priests, and he says to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. So you got, the, you got armed guard, rear guard, priests blowing trumpets, and the ark in the middle. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp 
and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and he roused the priest and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed them while the trumpets kept on sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and they returned to the camp and they did this for six days. Now some of you are very relieved that this line was in here because you thought we were going to have to go through that six times, right? The The same thing over and over and over again. Now, what is God doing here in all of this? Well, I don't know the mind of God, and so it's dangerous to speak, but the best I can figure, God's doing a number of things. I think for starters, he's reinforcing the order of creation. He's reinforcing the order of creation. If you know Genesis, it says that God created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. And then later, he spoke to his people, and he said, I want you to observe the same pattern. Six days you can work. On the seventh day, you can rest. And I, and I believe the reason God said that is it's his way of saying, hey, on six days, you can work. But then on day seven, I work. Now, is God working all seven days? Absolutely. God is working hard all the time. The reality is, for the rest of the six days, we're working too. And so what happens is, we steal all of God's credit. Right? I mean, we're working and we're patting ourselves on the back for our successes. We're saying, man, I, I accomplished that. I got that done. I dodged that bullet. Look at me. And God says, so here's what I want you to do. Work six days and on day seven, I want you to rest. But, but I want you to rest and just watch me work. Watch me do what only I can do. See, I think part of what God is doing here is he's going back to that rhythm and he's communicating it to the Israelites. This, this rhythm of, of work and rest. Now, As we talk about fanatic discipline, I hope you understand that the discipline of rest is an important part of all of this. When you think of fanatic discipline, you may think of someone who's just like foaming at the mouth, going at it hard all the time until they pass out at the end of the day, and that's not it. That's not it. Remember the 20-mile march, there's this, this balance of being disciplined, but this balance of rest. We believe in this so much here at St. John that when we talk about your discipleship journey, we talk about four things, four numbers, one, one, 15, six. And if you don't know these numbers, um, you can pick up a, a handout about this on the uh, info station. You can find it on our website. We think that if every person in this church does these four things, you will keep moving along on your life journey, growing in wholeness with God. And I won't talk about all this today, but, but you'll notice that we bookend it with a one and a six. We start off by saying, give one day a week to God in worship and rest. See, this discipline of rest is so important. One day where you just, you just kind of back off from working so hard and you let God work and, and you observe his work and you celebrate his work and you thank him for his work. And we all know that we're terrible at this, right? I mean, that's why it's so hard to even get to church every week because we've got so much stuff in our lives, so much is full. But when we do that, we deny ourselves the ability of just, of just sitting back and letting God work in our lives. It's really, really powerful. So we say, give God one day a week and worship and rest. And then we bookend it by saying, and then live the other six days, or the six other days rather, serving God by serving others. See, this, this rhythm is so important for you, and it was important for Israel, and I believe God was reinforcing it with this whole six days and then on the seventh day thing. Um, secondly, I think God was doing all this as a witness to the nations. See, we know that there were spies watching these Israelites. Everyone in the area was on alert. And so there were spies watching what was going to happen with Jericho from other cities. And can you just imagine as these spies watched the Israelites walk around the city one time, 
two times, three times, six times, seven times, seven times on the seventh day. And then they blow their trumpets and they shout. And if this works, can you imagine the impression that will make? I mean, no battle has ever been won this way before. And so what these spies will do is they'll run back to their cities and they'll say, there is something going on here. The God of Israel is like no God we have ever seen. Which is exactly what God is after. Not just for the sake of his ego, but, be, but, but when humans realize that, that our God, the true God, the living God, is a God like no other, that, that he is the only true and living God, when we realize that, when we realize how powerful he is, when we realize how good he is, then we can receive all of the things that God created us to have in a relationship with him. See, definitely a part of this is God is trying to show the other nations who he is so, so that they might trust in him and receive the benefits of a relationship with him. And then last, God is trying to teach these people fanatic discipline. I mean, again, can you imagine Joshua on day six trying to wake up these priests to be like, get out there and blow the trumpets again. Army, you're going to walk and we're not going to fight again. And, and they're just going, come on, are you serious? See, as God begins to cultivate fanatic discipline with the Israelites, he starts small. He teaches them in the small things first. Because if you can learn discipline in the small things, then it will transfer to the bigger things. It will cascade into other areas of your life. But if you can't learn discipline in the small things, you will never learn it in the big things. See, that's true of everything in life. There are some of you who uh, take a class in school and you consider it a blow-off class and so you don't try very hard. And do you realize what you're doing when you do that? You are, you are setting yourself up for failure when it comes to that really hard class when you have to dig deep. If you can't be disciplined in the small things, you'll never succeed in the big things. Or some of you have done that in jobs. You, know, you have a job that's way beneath you and you're like, I don't even have to work hard in this job. It's, it's so easy. If you don't have discipline in the small things, you'll never have the discipline you need to be successful in the big things. I, I once... Uh, heard of a church, I know a church, where they started off their volunteer recruitment or their volunteer tenure in an interesting way, no matter how you wanted to serve in this church, whether it was hospitality or teaching kids or, you know, singing on the platform, you had to start in the same way. You had to start by setting up chairs. They were a mobile church. They had to set up hundreds of chairs every weekend. Everyone started in the same way. And they looked for those who had the discipline to do their job well, to show up on time, to have a good attitude, to be trustworthy, because they said, hey, if, if you can't be faithful in small things, we're not going to give you bigger things. That's even biblical, by the way. I mean, this is true in generosity. This is true in giving. I hear so many people say, hey, I'm going to give. I'll be generous when I have more. That's a lie. That's not true. That's not the way it works. No, if you can't be disciplined in small things with a small amount of money, then if God should ever bless you with a large amount of money, you only have more to be undisciplined with. I promise you that's the way it works. See, we tend to think that the opposite is true. We think, okay, when it really counts, when it really matters, when the stakes are really high, when it's really important, when, when I really have a lot of responsibility put on me, then I'll give it my best. But that's not the way fanatic discipline is developed. It's, it's always cultivated in the small things first. See, here's the thing. Israel, they're going to have a lot of battles to fight. This is only the beginning of their journey. They're going to face other warriors, other cities. Uh, they're they're going to have some serious competition in their future. They're going to have to persevere. They're going to have to be disciplined. It is not going to be easy. And so God says, here's a great place for you to start your military battles with seven days of walking 
I mean, did it rain some of those days? You better believe it must have. And I mean, I'm sure there are people back in camp saying, hey, let's just skip today. I mean, if the weather's not good, let's just hold off and do this tomorrow. And someone woke up with a headache and they're like, I don't feel like going today. And Joshua's like, no, 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 we, we got to do this once a day for six days. Then on seven days, we'll march seven times and God will hand us over the city. You better believe that, that in the Israelite camp, there must have been someone who was a lot like me who's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why don't we just march around this thing 14 times at once, blow the trumpets, yell, knock the city out and move on. Let's get this done quick. And Joshua says, no, that's not, the way, that's not what God said. God said one time a day for six days. Then on the seventh day, seven times, blow the trumpets, shout, and God will give you this city. See, it's, it's as if God is saying, if you can't learn to do this now, if you can't learn to trust me in this, if you can't learn discipline to do it my way, you will never make it to the end. If you can't start by just, just walking the way I told you, in a faithful, disciplined way, you will never conquer your next big thing. Now, now I hope right now that, that, that all of us in this room are feeling a little convicted because none of us are very good at this. And even those of us who are good at it, man, we've got, we've got a long way to go. But, but here's what I'll tell you, that fanatic discipline is powerful. And as we're going to see right now, in the long run, the fanatic discipline of Israel pays off. It says on the seventh day, they've been doing this six days, one time a day, they go home, they come back out. It's like, I'm getting dressed for this? Come on. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. By the way, there is archaeological evidence that, that, that people have found of the lost city of Jericho, the, the destroyed city of Jericho, and uh, the Bible's narrative completely supports what they find archaeologically. The walls were first toppled, and then the city was burned, and they, and they can tell that from archaeological evidence. Uh, not only that, in the city they found large stores of grain that were still intact, which means the city was not under siege for a long time, that it was, it was a rather swift defeat. Interestingly enough, the, the grain was still there. It wasn't taken by the opposing army, which jives with what, um, what it says in Joshua. We didn't look at this part, where God says, hey, this, this stuff is not for you. I don't want you to be people who pillage other cities and, and loot them. That's, that's not what this is about. I want you to leave that stuff there. Dedicate that to me by leaving it there. And so the people left the grain there, which, again, was found in archaeological evidence. So if this sounds like a fairy tale to you, there is some archaeological support that backs it up. But I just want you to think about this big picture for a second. The great and powerful fortified city of Jericho is defeated, not by a blitzkrieg, not by some you know, crazy assault of the cavalry, but with seven days of faithfully plodding along the city walls just the way God said to do. And really this shouldn't surprise us, because often when God is doing big things, he does it in such shocking, small ways, but, but in, in highly disciplined ways. I mean, just think, when it came time for God to finally move against our greatest enemies as humans, the powers of sin and death and darkness and shame, when God was finally ready to, to break 
the bondage that we as humanity were, were stuck in. He didn't raise up an angelic army to launch an air assault, did he? No, how did he do it? He did it with a man, the, the Son of God, who hung dutifully on a cross for six long hours. Just think about that for a minute. Six long hours that Jesus endured on a cross, refusing to retaliate against those who mistreated him. Refusing to give an answer to those who taunted him and said, hey, if you're the son of God, you should do something powerful. Tempting him to use his power, he refused to use his power. Refusing to cry out to his father, knowing that if he cried out to his father, his father would not forsake him. And, and his father would answer, and yet, and yet he used the restraint not to cry out for mercy from his father for six long hours. Can you imagine the discipline? And I got to tell you, even with Jesus, even with Jesus, even though he was the son of God, that discipline was cultivated through 30 years of walking our sod, of getting up early in the morning and going and spending time with his father, of trusting his father in the small things, of, of learning discipline so that when it really mattered, when it really counted, God would save us. He would save the world. He would, he would break the, the hold of sin and darkness and death over each and every one of us and bring us into true freedom and life and relationship because his son was willing to have the fanatic discipline of hanging on a cross for six long hours. Can you imagine that kind of discipline? More important, can you just thank Jesus for it, for what he did for you right now? Come on, you clap. You clap when you see a team perform well. When you see what the Son of God has done for you, there's, there's nothing like it. And that's the power of fanatic discipline. It is required if you're going to conquer your next big thing. So right now, I want you to do an internal assessment. Where are you in this? Examine your life. Have you learned the power of fanatic discipline? Are you still someone who's driven by the, the winds of your emotion back and forth? See, if, if you're the latter, if that's you, if you need to learn this, then here's my counsel. Start small, just the way God did with Israel. Start with small things in your life. If you need, need to grow and exercise, don't sign up for a triathlon tomorrow. I don't think that's going to work for you. Start small. Start with five minutes of exercise every day. And if you're faithful in the small things, if you can learn discipline in the small things, it will change your life in other ways. If you want to spend more time with God, you know, we talk about spending 15 minutes a day here in a faith-building discipline. If 15 minutes is too long for you, start smaller. Start with fives. Start with one minute a day. I, here's what I can tell you. If you, do, if you do time with God just one minute a day, every day, as you start to learn discipline in the small things, it will grow into other parts of your life. See, here's the other truth for you today. That this is not just humanism. This is not just business talk. God he wants to give you fanatic discipline. I want you to look at what it says in 2 Timothy. It says, For the spirit God gave us, it does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. I'm going to read that again because I want you to take hold of this. For the spirit God gave you, if you are in him, if you've been baptized into Christ, it does not make you timid or flighty. It doesn't make you unreliable. Instead, this spirit gives us power it gives us love and self-discipline. Maybe today, and I advise this all the time, maybe today you can begin by asking God for his spirit. Daily, ask for God's spirit, because when that spirit's given, it will begin to give you power and love 
and self-discipline. But I do want to be clear on one thing before I'm done. Discipline isn't enough on its own. Discipline is not enough on its own to help you conquer your next big thing. See, I could practice soccer all day and I would never be Carly Lloyd. And fanatic discipline, apart from the blessing of God, it is not enough to enable you to get over your next big thing. That's why you got to track along with this. It starts with first identifying your next big thing, and that is the right next big thing. Some of you, you want to get that hot girl or guy. You want to make a bunch of money. You want to get a fancy car, and, and you think God's going to stand with you in that. And God has no interest in standing with you in that. See, it starts with identifying the right next big thing in your life, something that is actually on God's agenda for your life and for the world. When you start on God's agenda, then he'll stand with you. And then you've got to leverage your past. You've got to look back at the past faithfulness of God because that will give you the faith to face the challenges that you're facing in your future. And then when you get those two things right, when, when, you, when your heart is aligned with God's, when you are locked in in faith, knowing that God is powerful, believing and trusting in what he's done and what he can do, then if you add to it fanatic discipline, God can do the impossible through you. Let me pray. Father,